Okay, we'll get started here. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this book of Proverbs and the wisdom that it imparts to us. We thank you so much that we don't have to depend on our own humanly devised wisdom. We can depend upon you. We are so thankful that you have provided Jesus Christ, the ultimate in wisdom, and the wisdom that we receive when we receive your Holy Spirit. We ask that you will be with us this evening and help us to understand this book more perfectly. We ask these, this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I better go to slideshow mode here. From the beginning. Here we go. Okay. Proverbs. Jesus Christ, our wisdom. And that's what the book of Proverbs is all about, is wisdom. The Hebrew title of Proverbs is Mishlei Shlomo, the Proverbs of Solomon. The term for proverb is Mishal, which comes from a root meaning parallel or similar and signifies a description by way of comparison. And that's what we see throughout the book of Proverbs is these, this comparison. The, uh, the wise do this, but the foolish do this. this the, the wise are characterized by this, the foolish by this. So it's, it's uh, comparing. Take a look at the flight characteristics, the facts, the landmarks, the itinerary, the gospel, the history, and the travel tips. Proverbs is attributed to three main authors. You may not realize that. We usually think of Proverbs as being written entirely by Solomon, but there are a couple of other authors in there, Agur and Lemuel. Little is known of Agur and Lemuel, but some think that Solomon either knew them personally or had access to their writings. Some even believe these were aliases for Solomon. So some people think that these are just other names for Solomon. Some proverbs are anonymous, going by the title Songs of the Wise. So apparently uh, Solomon, being a wise man, set up a, a school or institution of wise men. And some of the sayings are attributed to those wise men. Solomon wrote his proverbs between 570 and 930 BC. Because we don't know for sure about Agur and Lemuel, specific dates for their compositions can't be determined. Another person that enters into this is Hezekiah. King Hezekiah compiled all the Proverbs sometime between 729 and 686 BC. So he edited all the Psalms and put the Proverbs and put them all together. The book of Proverbs is part of the Bible's wisdom literature, along with Job and Ecclesiastes. It is one of the most read books of the Bible and one of the most practical. Proverbs is the greatest how-to book ever written. And those who have the good sense to take it as lessons to heart will quickly discover wisdom on such topics as godliness, prosperity, and contentment. So when we look at the itinerary, the outline of the book, the first seven verses are sort of a preamble. They tell us that this is the uh, Proverbs of Solomon and gives us the purpose of, of the book, discovering wisdom. Then we have some extended discourses on wisdom. And then we have the Solomonic Proverbs. And you notice there's two sections of Solomonic Proverbs. 10 through, uh, chapters 10 through 22, and then again through 25 through 29. And in between there, there's the sayings of the wise. And then the, the sayings of Agur in chapter 30. The sayings of Lemuel in the first part of chapter 31. And then after that, there's this poem to the virtuous woman. And it doesn't give us any information about who this comes from, so it, it's kind of assumed that it comes from 
from this King Lemuel, but we're not certain about that. In Proverbs 8, we're, we're dealing with the gospel now, how it relates to the gospel. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified and seen in its perfection. Paul referred to Jesus as the wisdom of God. He also described Christ as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you can see here how Jesus relates to this topic of wisdom. Proverbs 11.4 also makes the bold statement that righteousness delivers from death. Now, we can't be delivered by our righteousness, so where does this righteousness come from? Well, this is a truth that is fully explained, expanded on in the New Testament as Christ's righteousness on the cross. It is Christ's righteousness that delivers us from death. In Proverbs 30, verse 4, a girl wrote a clear reference to the sovereignty of God in his son. It's another example of Christ as wisdom personified. He asked this question, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? If you know. We, we now know the answer to those questions. Part of the life of Christ in the believer is the wisdom he gives us through the Holy Spirit and the Word to live righteously. Much of the history surrounding the book of Proverbs revolves around Solomon. The Bible says that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And then he spoke 3,000 Proverbs. You read about that in 1 Kings chapter 4. And so not all of his Proverbs ended up in the, in the book of Proverbs. Only about 800 or so. His reign was the time in Israel history when prosperity and intellectual sophistication were at their height. Some of the travel tips, the things that we can learn from the book. A wise man or woman is always learning. They don't say, don't tell me, I've already, I already know these things. They are always open to increasing their knowledge, not content to stop learning. Solomon's life is a cautionary tale. Practice what you preach. Even though the Bible called him the wisest man who ever lived, he engaged in foolish behavior later in life. He built God's temple, but he turned towards idolatry because he married 700 women and had 300 concubines who turned his heart from God. No wonder the Bible says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So how do we know that the book of Proverbs was written by these various different authors? Well, the text itself tells us that. We, we find these seven headings in the text that tells, tell us who the authors are of various portions of the book. So at the beginning, we, we read about the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And we read the Proverbs of Solomon. We read also the, the sayings of the wise in, in chapter 22, verse 17. And then there are more sayings of the wise that we're told about in chapter 24, verse 23. And then we have more Proverbs of Solomon. These were transcribed by the men of Hezekiah. That's where we read about the men of Hezekiah compiling the, these Proverbs of Solomon. And then as we get towards the end of the book, in chapter 30, we have the sayings of Agur, and in chapter 31, the sayings of Lemuel. And it doesn't specifically say that Lemuel is the author of the the last section of that chapter about the, the Proverbs 31 woman, but since it doesn't say anything, it's generally assumed that he's the author of it. What is the purpose of the book of Proverbs? The book of Proverbs begins with a specific purpose statement in chapter 1. The, the central verb in this passage is here. And subsidiary to that are four purposes for hearing. 
So we're supposed to be here, but why are we supposed to be here? Well, to know wisdom, to understand wisdom sayings, to subscribe to moral insight, and to move toward maturity. In sum, the purpose of Proverbs is to challenge the reader to attain God's wisdom, which is to appropriate his design for life. Since we are following God, we want to know, we want to live according as he designed it to live. In specific terms, it endeavors to transform immature people into wise people. There are three different Hebrew words that are translated as wisdom, and each one of these carries a, a slightly different nuance, so it's good to understand these different words for wisdom. The first one is chokmah, which means the practical ability to apply theory to practice. So it's the, the wisdom that enables us to take theoretical ideas and transform them into practical living. The next word is bina, which is the ability to, to discern intellectually between truth and error. So it's the wisdom that enables us to establish whether something is truth or error. And then the third word is toshiah, toshiah which um, means sound wisdom, efficient wisdom as an authentic intuition of the spiritual or psychological. So there are these three different kinds of wisdom in the book. Now, there are many different ways that I could have presented the, the text of Proverbs to you. But I decided probably the most helpful way for, for me to do this was to take some, 12 of the main subjects of the book of Proverbs and to give you those subjects and and the verses, the passages that relate to those subjects. So I think that will be helpful to you as you study the book of Proverbs, to, to take a topic and then look at some of the, the verses that pertain to that topic. At least 12 topics aren't uh, exhaustive. They aren't the entire book of Proverbs, but they are, but they are 12 of the main topics. They're covered in the book. So there's cheerfulness, contentment, decisions, diligence, friendship, generosity, humility, and kindness. There's parenting. It deals a lot with parenting. It deals with purity. It deals with righteousness, and it deals with truthfulness. So I've given you a lot of the, the verses that pertain to those topics, those subjects. And in writing down all of those scripture references, there's a good chance that I made a mistake or two. So if you discover that mistake in your, in your studies, uh, let me know so I can correct my notes. But let's take a, a look at some of those of those topics and see what, what Proverbs has to say about them. So first we'll look at cheerfulness. First of all, cheerfulness in the book of Proverbs is talking about genuine joy, not just efforts to look cheerful, not just putting on a happy face the deep-seated joy that comes from following God. So we look at Proverbs 14, verse 13. Even in laughter the heart may ache, and rejoicing may end in grief. So just because a person looks happy, that may not always be the deep-seated joy that we're seeking. In chapter 15, verse 15, it says, All the days of the oppressed are wretched, but the cheerful heart is a continual feast. So the joy that 
comes from God allows us to have a continual feast. Even if we're confronted with circumstances that may not be very joyful or cheerful, we can have joy because of our relationship to God. Cheerfulness is a product of what one values. In 21.15, when justice, he says, for example, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. So as we attach ourselves to God and learn to value what he values, then when we experience the things that he values, that brings us joy. It comes through those things that inspire a person. So the things that uplift us, the things that come into our lives and, and inspire us, 1225, anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. So a kind word is one of those things that, that inspire us and, and lift us up. Uh, we also learn that it's the result of fulfilled hope. When we are looking for certain things and those hopes are realized, 13.12 tells us hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And also, this is very important, it comes through people who enrich one's life. Those special people in our lives, they bring us cheerfulness. 27.9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart. Yeah, they do. And pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. So the advice of a friend and their presence in our lives, that, that really brings cheerfulness to us. Contentment. This is a very important principle. We're, we're familiar with the New Testament, which tells us that, where Paul told us that godliness with contentment is great gain. So contentment is very important. Contentment, of course, means being satisfied with what one has. Not always seeking to have more, to appreciate what we, what we already have. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. So we can sometimes we can have things if we if we associate with the wicked. But it's better to have less than to, to be associated with the wicked. Contentment, being satisfied with what we have, produces moderation. And greed is avoided. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And here, here's the important part. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I have too may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I, become, I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So part of being content is having that, that right balance. Being discontented can lead to cheating. We may try to devise some way to obtain those things that we desire that we don't have. Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. 
and this could well refer to get-rich-quick get schemes that employ false claims instead of honest labor. Discontent can lead to covetous, covetous dreaming. So we may think about all the things that we don't have and dwell on them instead of being thankful and appreciative of what we do have. All day, this is talking about the sluggard now, it says that the craving of him will be the death of him because he's, his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. So the sluggard, instead of working to obtain things, just thinks about how nice it would be to have them. Well, as the, as the saying goes, if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. He, he wants things, but he's not willing to work for them. So that's why content is, contentment is much better than discontentment. And this is something that is um, very prevalent in our society is discontentment often leads to overwork. It's important to be diligent and be productive, but obviously a person can take that too far where he only thinks about acquiring more It says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust in your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. So we don't want to expend all of our time and effort trying to acquire more. Decisions. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about how to make decisions and the things that go into making godly decisions. Decisions require integrity. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. So if you want to make right decisions, godly decisions, integrity, integrity must be part of your life. And of course, right along with that, uh, making godly decisions require routine obedience to God. You can't wait until you have, you're making a a very important decision, and then decide you're going to be obedient to God. You need to have that routine clearly established in your life so that you're in the habit of obeying God. So when, when it comes time to make important decisions, you're prepared for it. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. And of course, the caveat that goes with that is that they can't be just your plans totally independent of what God is doing. Your plans have to be in accord with the will of God. And this, is, of course, is where the name it and claim it prosperity gospel people go astray. They think that whatever they dream up as a, as a plan, that, that God has to endorse it. Well, no, he doesn't. Our plans have to be in accord with his will, not his will in accord with ours. An important part of making godly decisions is seeking godly advice from other uh, brethren, other, other Christians who perhaps have had more experience and knowledge in a particular area where, where we seek understanding. Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. So you not only have to listen to the advice, you have to put it into action, you have to put it into practice. Require, it, decisions require careful consideration of the facts. 
The book of Proverbs tells us that the person who just listens to, to one side of the story and makes a decision without hearing the other side isn't getting all the facts. The simple believe anything, but the prudent give thought to their steps. The wise fear the Lord and shun evil, but a fool is hot-headed and yet feels secure. So the fool just charges ahead and makes a decision without giving careful consideration to all of the facts. Once we make a decision, we have to make plans that are flexible. We, we make the best decisions that we can based on, upon the information that we have, but of course we don't have perfect knowledge. And further knowledge, further understanding may come to light later on. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but the Lord, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. So humans must not hold so tightly to their plans that they resist God's sovereignty in altering their decisions. What seemed like a good plan at the time may be inadequate when we discover more information, more complete understanding of the decision we've made. Diligence. Diligence moves quickly to accept a challenge, and that leads to distinction. The, uh, the Hebrew word that's used there for diligence talks about, about quickness, about being quick. When, when we are faced with a challenge to respond quickly, and that leads to distinction. It leads to other people recognizing our abilities. So that your trust may be in the Lord, I teach you today, even you. Have I not written thirty things for you, saying of counsel and knowledge, teaching you to be honest and to seek the truth, so that you bring back truthful reports? Here's the verse that I was looking for, verse 29. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. So we strive to be confident, and chances are our confidence will be recognized. Diligence seeks good and finds it. The tendency of human beings is to find what they're looking for. If we're always seeking good, that's what we're going to find much of the time. If we always have a bad attitude and we're always thinking that everything's going to turn out poorly, it often will. Whoever seeks good finds favor, but evil comes to one who searches for it. So if you're looking for trouble, there's a good chance that you will find it. Diligence acts decisively. The plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. So once again, that ties in with the practice of making hasty decisions before you know all of the facts. The diligent person not only works hard, but he plans well, and then carefully implements the strategy. The diligent is contrasted with the ineffective approach of the sluggard. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief. 
and scarcity like an armed man. So we don't want to overwork, but we do want to work as unto the Lord, as we are told in the New Testament. Friendship. There's a correspondence between the vertical relationship that you have with God and the horizontal relationships you have with other people. Your, your good relationship with God will be the basis for establishing relationship with those around you. When the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. So often we will find that if we have a right relationship with God, he will enable us to make peace even with our enemies. Kindness and truth are foundational for relationships both with God and with other people. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. The, uh, the Hebrew words there for let love and faithfulness, love and faithfulness. The love is chesed. You're familiar with that word probably. We, we normally translate it as um, covenant faithfulness, but it has a, a broad range of meaning. In this context, it means love. And faithfulness refers to the truth. So kindness and truth are foundational for relationships with God and with other people. Friendship looks for what it can give, not just what it can get. So I, I believe that this uh, passage is, is telling us what not to do. It's giving us a negative example not to follow. The poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich, of course, have many friends. It is a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. So the normal human tendency is to just be friendly towards people that we can get something from and not to care about the needy. And friendship leads us into generosity. Generosity follows the divine pattern. So just as God is generous with us, we are to be generous with other people. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. So God gives us many blessings and what, what uh, the second part of the verse, uh, another way tr to translate it would be toil as nothing to it. In other words, God gives us these blessings and we don't get them, we don't receive them because of our toil, because of our working for them. We do it because we receive these blessings because God is generous with us. Insensitivity to the needy perverts the divine pattern. So when we are insensitive to the needs of those around us, we're not following God's divine pattern of caring for all regardless of their station in life. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. So if we're not sensitive to the needs of others, the time may come when we may need help and no one is there to help us. Generosity avoids the damaging effects of greed. And greed can indeed be very damaging. Whoever increases wealth by taking interest, a profit from the poor, amasses it for another 
who will be kind to the poor. So in, in the Torah, the, the, the Jewish people were told not to exact usury from the poor of the land. And so if a person insists on doing that, taking advantage of the poor, then the book of Proverbs predicts that he will lose his wealth and it will be given to a person who does consider the needs of the poor. Some more principles of generosity. Generous people give when they can. This is uh, talking about the sluggard again. In the verse before this, it says, the craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. Generous people help if they are able. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. People curse the one who hoards grain, but they pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. Generous people save for others rather than consuming all of their assets on on themselves. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. So the stingy person is holding on to his assets, not willing to share them with others. But once again, his wealth will be lost to those who will use it more responsibly. Sometimes you'll hear people, and hopefully most of the time this is jokingly, but you'll hear people say, oh, I'm spending my children's inheritance. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm using all, all, all my wealth right now because I'm not willing to, to leave it to, to my children or my grandchildren. But that is not the principle that's given to us in, in Proverbs. Generous people honor God in their kindness to the needy. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So if, if people possess wealth and won't share it, won't help the needy, they're not just dishonoring the needy, they're dishonoring God. Because that is not in accord with his nature or in accord with his will. Humility. Humility is to be generated by an internal decision, lest it be compelled by external factors. We find this throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, that when people refuse to be humble, that often God forces them to be humble, whether they want to be or not. So it's better to to make an internal decision to be humble, lest it be, lest it be compelled by external factors. We're given a, a simple example of that in, in Proverbs. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence, and do not claim a place among his great men. It is better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. So it's better to, to be humble and to take a place of humility and be asked to come forward rather than to assert yourself arrogantly and then be embarrassed. 
Humility results in honor. If you humble yourself, you will often find that, that uh, others seek to honor you and to put you in a place of honor because you were humble, because you didn't arrogantly assert yourself. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. So humbling yourself has great reward. And of course, the opposite of humility, pride, is to be avoided. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and a perverse speech. So these are the things that the Lord hates and things that we should hate. And we should eschew these things in our, in our own experience, in our own lives. And the other verse, 16, 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. So the, the humble person is not hot-tempered, is not getting himself into difficulties because of his hot-tempered nature. He remains humble. He's able to calm the quarrels of others. And then there is kindness. We want to be kind to everyone, of course, but there are two special categories of, of kindness that we want to take note of in Proverbs. First of all, the poor. We want to be kind to the poor. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. The righteous people, the people who are seeking to follow God, they are concerned about the poor. Those who live by the divine standard are sensitive to the inherent dignity and worth of all humans made in God's image, regardless of their financial situation. So we're concerned about the well-being of the poor. We're not just wanting to make friends with the rich so we can get something. And then animals. The, the godly person is kind to animals. He does not inflict needless hurt and suffering upon them. Needless cruelty. The righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. So the godly person seeks to be kind to animals. The kind person values all of God's creation and does not abuse or exploit any of it for selfish ends. We, we take no joy in bringing suffering and pain on anyone or anything. And here's the, a big one, parenting. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about parenting. First of all, well, it's, it's been said that um, parenting, uh, the most important role in life entrusted to amateurs. <laughs> you don't receive training usually to be a parent, but you find yourself in that role. 
Well, parenting, godly parenting, is rooted in the personal life of the parents. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. So we, we covered that verse in another context of the, the parent being responsible for the long-term well-being of their children. Thinking about the future, not just the here and now. The righteous lead blameless lives. Blessed are their children after them. So the, the example that is set by godly parents is very important as far as passing on that godly lifestyle to their children. Of course, part of parenting is the necessity of discipline from time to time when it is needed. You've heard this many times before. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline, to discipline them. Of course, this is not talking in any way about being abusive. Discipline is done in love, not in anger. But there are times when, when it is necessary to discipline children and to not discipline them uh, only allows their wrong actions and wrong attitudes to be reinforced. We, we discipline children when necessary, but although the rod of discipline is applied when necessary, the more typical approach in the book of Proverbs, the typical approach of instruction is reproof constructive admonition of nurturing the children, teaching them. And when we talk about parenting, it's not just the parents who are responsible. The children are also responsible in this process. They have a, a role to play and a responsibility. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. So there is much for the children to gain and benefit from in playing an active role in this parenting process. There is some question about this father-son thing in the book of Proverbs. There's, there's some debate about that. When it talks about father and son, if it's talking about a biological father and son, or if it's talking about a teacher and his student, his pupil. So there's, there's that possibility. But I, I think in those cases where it talks about the father and the mother, we really are talking about a, a biological relationship. It, it may be that sometimes we are talking about a, a teacher and his student, the wise man teaching his student. And then we go to purity. Purity must be planted in the heart. In order to be real purity, it needs to be incorporated into the person's nature. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. For an adulterous woman is a deep pit and a wayward wife is a narrow well. Like a bandit, she lies in wait and multiplies the faithful, uh, the unfaithful among men. So purity is something that must come from the heart. Purity must be cultivated by conduct. 
You can't just think clearly, you actually have to do it. The way of the guilty is devious, but the conduct of the innocent is upright. So they carry out purity in their lives. They don't just give it lip service, but they actually do it. And purity bears the fruit of reputation. Purity has good results in our lives when we practice purity. Even small children are known by their actions. So is their conduct, conduct really pure and upright. So if you are a person who is given to purity, you'll develop a good reputation. Righteousness. Or the person who might think, well, righteousness, I mean, that sounds like it's going to take considerable work and it sounds like it will place lots of limits on my behavior. So the book of Proverbs emphasizes the good results, the pleasant, positive results of righteousness. The first result of righteousness is life. A wicked person earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. Truly the righteous attain life, but whoever pursues evil finds death. So there's a good result to righteousness and a not so good results result to unrighteousness. The second result of Righteousness is a good reputation. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value the one who speaks what is right. So rulers, those in authority, even if they are not righteous themselves, they recognize the value of one who is righteous, who strives to be righteous. And of course, most importantly, righteousness pleases God. Even when it's not appreciated by other human beings, it is appreciated by God. The Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. And righteousness not only brings benefits to us as individuals, but it brings benefits to society at large. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. So righteousness brings collective blessings to the community. And finally, truthfulness. Truthfulness is required in all areas of life. It's required, truthfulness is required in government. Love and faithfulness, remember that's the, the Hebrew words uh, chesed and emet, love and, and truth, truthfulness. Love and faithfulness keep a king safe. Through love his throne is made secure. So that truthfulness is, is very important, even to a ruler. If a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. First of all, and secondly, uh, truthfulness is required in the marketplace. 
And the, uh, the things that Proverbs has to say about this are, are somewhat humorous because you can imagine uh, a merchant doing this. It's no good, it's no good, says the buyer. Then goes off and boasts about the purchase. So it's, it, when he's paying for it, well then, oh, it's no good, it's just not worth much. But then when he's selling it, it oh, it's a very valuable thing. Uh, in verse 10, it says, differing weights and differing measures, the Lord detests them both. This idea of in the ancient world of, of using different weights for buying and selling. So you can buy things cheap and sell things for a higher price. And that's also uh, in uh, verse 23. It tells us again, the Lord has differing weights and dishonest skills do not please him. We also need truthfulness in our relationships with other people. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. So don't make excuses. If you're able to help someone out, don't, don't put them off. In 24, Do not testify against your neighbor without cause. Would you use your lips to mislead? So we find that's a, an illustration of what's in the Torah about bearing false witness against your neighbor. And 25:18, Like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against a neighbor. So once again, it's talking about being truthful and dealing with our neighbor, not just in a court setting, but in the everyday settings of life as well. And then, of course, truthfulness is important when dealing with God. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So I think if you examine these scriptures and the other ones that I've given you relating to those 12 topics, you'll, you'll get a pretty good idea of what the book of Proverbs is all about. Now, one thing I want to give you as a caution about the book of Proverbs, we want to be careful about not absolutizing the Proverbs. What do I mean by that? Well, the individual Proverbs must be interpreted and applied within the context of the whole book and the teaching of the whole Bible. They are not ironclad guarantees for the here and now, but true observations that time will bear out. Here's an example of a proverb. Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. Okay. The book of Job is a corrective to the belief that this proverb is true all the time in the present. A mechanical application to the here and now was the impetus behind the arguments of Job's three friends. So remember now that Proverbs 
are things that are, as far as the Proverbs that deal with our relationships with people, they are generally true. It's generally true that if you obey God and you faithfully follow him, that you'll be blessed and you'll have good things that will happen to you. And it's generally true that if you don't obey God and you aren't faithfully following him, that bad things will happen to you. But there are exceptions, right? We read about those in, in the book of Job. Sometimes the wicked prosper, and sometimes the righteous undergo severe hardships. So don't think of the books, uh, the principles of Proverbs, the statements of Proverbs, as far as they apply to people and our relationships with people as being always invariably true, without exception. Some Proverbs are true but only in certain situations. The Proverbs embody wisdom. Only a wise person knows the situation in which a particular proverb applies. The most dramatic illustration of the context-bound application of Proverbs is seen in a comparison of Proverbs 26, 4, and 5, which says this, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. And then the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. So it depends on the, on the context. It depends on the situation. In other words, it depends on the fool, and the truly wise person will be so sensitive to human nature that he will know when to apply the one and not the other. So if you have a fool that really wants an answer, is really seeking an answer, by all means, give him an answer. But if you have a fool who is not really looking for an answer, he just wants to argue, you're wasting your time giving him an answer. So this is a good illustration of how the Proverbs don't always apply in every situation. And here, here's another big one. We are told in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Down through the centuries, many Christian parents have diligently reared their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, only to have them depart from the faith and never return. That doesn't mean they fail as parents. It only means that the children chose not to accept their training. So it isn't an ironclad guarantee that, boy, if you, if you train your children properly, they'll never depart from the faith. Well, you're not guaranteed that. Proverbs which describe the nature and attributes of God are certain. They are invariably true. When the Proverbs are telling us what God is like, they are always invariably true. But Proverbs which deal with human relationships are generalizations. They are generally true, but they do not describe every single situation. So that's a, an important caveat to understand when you're dealing with the Proverbs. They aren't always invariably true. They aren't ironclad guarantees. And that's why the book of, Job's, of Job and the Book of Proverbs uh, serve as counterbalances to each other, giving us some insight into exceptions to what is generally true. So that's the overview of the book of Proverbs. Father in heaven, we thank you for the tremendous insights that you give us through the book of Proverbs. We thank you that we are not left to our own devices, that we can rely upon you as the source of knowledge, of wisdom, of understanding. We appreciate that, and we ask that you would help us to incorporate these principles into our lives in the name of the one who personifies wisdom, Jesus Christ. Amen.
why some of the problems are repeated, such as the sluggard or the contentious woman. There are certain problems that are, you know, they're tweaked a little bit. Is there any speculation as to why, why that is? In, in Generally, when something is repeated in the Bible, it's generally because it's really important. <laughs> um, important for us to, to grasp, to understand. I don't know of any of any explanation other than that. That, that is generally that the case that when when something is repeated, it's it's really important to understand, to grasp. Yep. Yeah. Dana, are the other um, proverbs that Solomon wrote um, available in another format, another book? Not that I know of. Well, it, it says that in in First Kings, it tells us that he wrote. 3,000 proverbs and however many songs he wrote. <laughs> so it, it, it tells us that he did that. So it's not speculation that he did that. We just don't know. There's um, lots of writings that we know of by the biblical writers that weren't, aren't in the Bible. So, And that's not a problem because the ones that God wanted it to be in the Bible. He saw to it that they were included in the, in the canon. When, when we get to the New Testament, it seems that if we re- read between the lines, it seems that the Apostle Paul wrote four epistles to the Corinthian church, but only two of them are in the Bible. So we don't have to, oh no, part of the Bible is lost. And God, God saw to it that what should be in the Bible is in the Bible.